So, I'm not the doctor, but I'm happy to guide you for a 30-minute meditation. So, wonju wonju nunako, welcome, welcome everybody. And on the eve of the referendum, I'd like to pay my respects to acknowledge that we're sitting here tonight on Nunga Wachak Buja. I'd like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, their elders of the present, their elders of the past, and all of those incredible leaders that are emerging. I'm just constantly blown away. So tonight's meditation, first and foremost, it's kind of interesting. I was just sitting a little interview with a postgrad student from Curtin who was asking me all sorts of questions about what's the difference between mindfulness and meditation. And I said, you know, at the very heart of all of this is to have the right intention, to have sila the right conduct and morality. So I always like to start my meditations with a attitude of gratitude. So what I'd invite you to do is make yourself comfortable. So it's about kindness and compassion, first and foremost, really doesn't matter how you sit. And then what I'd like you to do is bring one thing to mind that made you smile today. Something you're grateful for. And just hold that precious seed of gratitude with you as you gently close down the eyes and smile. Even if you don't feel like smiling, just, you know, Lift the corners up and take a moment to breathe. And to start the meditation, Start by acknowledging this earth, this country that you sit on. Allow yourself to sit comfortably. And I always like to start with setting a bit of an intention. And it need not be anything too profound. You can simply set the intention that for the next 30 minutes, you'll give yourself the space and the grace to relax. And as an act of metta or loving kindness, 
to yourself. Let that intention settle into the heart space. And you might even put a hand on the heart. It's feeling the gentle rise and fall of the chest. Getting a sense of the, the peace, the stillness that lies within. Even when life can seem totally chaotic, whirling around you, we take refuge in the heart space. And sometimes if you're feeling a bit wound up, it's nice to bring your attention directly to the feet. You feel the connection between the feet and the earth. And if you haven't already, just turning the gaze downwards, beyond the nose. Sort of sends a signal to the mind that it's time to relax. You can move your toes a little bit. And this is where you can use the breath to help you with that first satipatthana, mindfulness of body. So as you breathe in, breathing in awareness, Feeling the feet, the toes. And then on the out breath, letting them relax. So they become soft and still. 
And this is such a beautiful Dharma hall. You can almost feel the kind, gentle energy in the room as you relax with every out breath. You can gradually move the attention up to the ankles and the calves. So we're starting to get a sense of that mind-body connection. And again on the in-breath, you might just move the calf muscles a bit. It's feeling the aliveness. It's like you breathe in vitality. Breathe in life. And breathe out peace, calm, softness. And moving up to the fires. It's feeling the muscles the bones and the sinews. Feeling the way the back of the fires and the bottom make contact with the chair or the cushion. Breathing in awareness. Letting go. Connecting with the earth. Connecting with its inherent goodness. Sitting like a mountain. or a big tree spreading its roots down into the ground. And relaxing. Nowhere to be, nothing to do, no one to be, anatta.
anicca, just simply being. And the mind may naturally wander. That's quite okay. The art is to know it's wandering. Let's gently bring your awareness back to the breath. this body of breath. Noticing any feelings of peace and stillness taking refuge Noticing the way the mind 
become still. Like a pool of clear water. As you rest in spacious awareness, at ease. Where is your experience now? When do you experience now? If not now, when do you? value peace.
In a few moments I'll start to bring the meditation to a close. Just catch your reaction, then let it go. feeling into that place of stillness within the heart. I invite you to just bring your hands to your heart. And you might like to say to yourself, say thank you. Giving yourself this aggregate of causes and conditions we take to be self. Now may I be safe. May I be happy and well. May I know kindfulness, gentleness. May I move through this life with ease. And letting those kind words settle in your heart. Because we know that we can look through the whole world for someone more deserving of our love and kindness. And we offer it to ourselves. And when we're ready, we can bring someone to mind who's in need of a bit of care and kindness right now and wish for them to, to feel safe and happy, to feel well. To go through their days with ease. Sending out the merits. And just holding those good merits, those, those good kind wishes with you as I begin to sound the bell.
And when you're ready, you can gently open the eyes, turn to the person next to you, and say thank you to them too. So may we all be well and happy and peaceful and travel with ease. <laughs> now, is the doctor in the house? The doctor is not in the house, unfortunately. Doctor Walker what to do? <laughs> Dr. Walker sends his sincere apologies for not being able to come tonight. Okay, well, I can give a talk. So we have Sandra Henview, <laughs> who leads the spiritual education group at BSWA. Alrighty, well, now Ashan Brahm says that the way to approach these talks is straight from the heart with no preparation, so here we go. <laughs> this will be entertaining. Um, <laughs> so, um, the, theme of, the theme of this year's Rains Retreat speaker series has been Turning Points. So maybe I will tell you about my turning points. So years ago, I realised I'm getting older now, rocking a few more silvers. And um, years ago, I lived in Sri Lanka for a year. I went to Sri Lanka as an intern with a program that was called the Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development. It sounds very laudable. So I signed up and off I went. It was my first big trip overseas, so I, was, I grew up in the country and that was pretty daunting. I had to apply for a passport. So off I went to um, Sri Lanka. And being a... Um, you know, I, I think things have changed for sure nowadays, but back then I was pretty young and naive and as a um, Western woman living in Colombo, it was pretty hard. Everyone wanted to give me a ride in the tuk-tuk. I'd go down the street to buy a bag of bananas and I would have had five offers for a lift by then and it was only a couple hundred metres. So I just found that everything was a transaction the moment I left my door. <laughs> it was quite maddening. So after a while, I noticed that people would dress in white and they'd all head off on a Friday evening. So one night I thought I'd follow them. So I put on my white clothes and off I went to the temple and what I discovered was it was so peaceful, no one bothered me. And you know, at the time I didn't really understand what I was looking at. I had a, there was something deep inside me that drew me to the Buddhist temple but I didn't, you know, I didn't really feel it back then. But I certainly enjoyed the peace and quiet. 
So this went on and I would go along and the ladies would be having um, flower puja. They'd get all these beautiful lotuses and they'd offer these lotuses and we'd you know, do the circumambulation of the stupa and it was all this ceremony and then the monks would chant and, and at the time I didn't really understand what the chanting was about. I knew that it was holy and I knew that it had great reverence but I didn't really understand it. So this went on for a bit and then when I was in Sri Lanka I was, it was 2004 and it was the year of the tsunami and on that morning of the tsunami, I mean, it, it did seem odd that morning. And I was supposed to catch the train down to Gaul. So I had planned it that Boxing Day, I would jump on the train and I would go down to Gaul. And I woke up with the most terrible kidney pain. I just couldn't move. And I'd already booked a tuk-tuk, I'd paid for the train ticket. And the tuk-tuk driver's downstairs and he's going, Madam, Madam, you must get in the tuk-tuk. You know, we, we're going to miss the train. And I said, oh, Sunil, I can't. I'm in so much pain. I'm not going. I'm staying home. So he was disappointed. He'd missed out on the fare. But, you know, something within me said, no, you, you have to stay home today. And then my friend rang me and when you feel sick in a um, tropical country, at least for my friend Katie and I, all you want to do is go to the hotel, sit in the air conditioning and eat Western food. So that's what we wanted to do. So I said to Katie, like, you know, come round, pick me up, we'll go to... Oh, I can't remember what it's called, the Symmetra or whatever the big hotel was called. And we'll go and sit in the aircon and eat Western food. So I remember travelling down Gaul Road and the phone is just going nuts. And it's the embassy ringing us. Where are you? We're on Gaul Road. Stay where you are. We're like, okay. Because they would often get very overexcited and we're like, oh yeah, whatever. And then I remember looking at the ocean and thinking, geez, it looks weird today, it's all silvery. And I didn't realise that what I was looking at was the ocean floor. Because, um, you know, the wave went back a fair way. And then we're sitting in the hotel and we're eating our Western food and... <laughs> All these sat phones are going off and people are racing around. We thought, gee, something big's happened. We better look at the TV. And we worked out that the tsunami had hit. But I guess the, um, the, there were a couple of turning points in this, right? The first turning point was that something had prevented me from getting on the train that was washed off its tracks. I don't think there were many survivors. And I didn't fully understand this until years later when I met um, Prem, who actually volunteers here sometimes. And he sat me down and he explained it to me. And he said, look, Sandra, I was in Sri Lanka at that time. I went down to Gaul. I looked at those train tracks. So all like this. You wouldn't have survived. 
because I'd always wondered about that. And then, uh, so that was the first turning point. I thought, wow, maybe there is something that looks over you. Maybe the Davids were looking over me that day. And then um, the second turning point was that, you know, within hours of that event happening, the Sri Lankan people gathered and all of a sudden you saw white streamers everywhere um, and the, the Buddhist flags and people just piling into tuk-tuks with loads of cooking gear, racing off to wherever to lend us support. It took days for aid to get off their tarmac at the airport, but the local people were right onto it. And that, and I just have this distinct memory of traveling through um, Colombo, seeing all the white flags up. Um, and I thought, wow, there is something in this, in this religion, Buddhism. There, there is a really strong community feel here. And there is a real, you know, willingness to just get in and help your fellow person. And that, that was a turning point for me. It, it just always stuck with me that there's something bigger than me and bigger than us. And yeah, that's when things started to fall into place. So I was a bit traumatized by the whole experience, obviously. And I really did wonder whether I should leave the country or stay in the country. The decision was made for me because my visa ran out, so I had to come home. But when I got back to Australia, I was really in quite a muddle. I didn't really know how to comprehend this experience. And that's when I started questioning faith a lot more. And I ended up here sitting on the blue carpet. And, you know, I really had never been here before. I rang up and asked what time prayers were, and they said, we don't do prayers. So, okay. So I thought, oh, well, I better go pick some flowers, because, you know, that's what you do. So I came here with my flowers, and I sat right there with all these daisies, just rearranging them, not knowing what to do. And Ajahn Brahm said, is there something you want to ask? But I was too scared. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, there are other stories from Sri Lanka that the upshot was I was a bit, I was a bit scared. So <laughs> I went home. But I still felt this, this pull. So over the time, I would um, listen to the Dharma talks and you know how Ajahn Brahm's voice is just so kind and so settling. So whenever I felt a little bit overwhelmed, I would just listen to the talks and they would calm me down. All the silly jokes, all the little stories, you know, the two bad bricks, the rest of them we've all heard. And it just became so comforting. And that was the real turning point that brought me to the BSWA. So that was part of the journey.
And over the years, I gradually learnt what the chants meant. And look, in the early days, because I've, I've been meditating for about 20 years, I've maintained my somewhat daily practice. And over the years, it kind of grows on you. So I started off just learning the five precepts, learning the namatasas, the, you know, paying the homage at the end. And I felt that real sense of peace and calm from that. And then, yeah, and then gradually, um, I even met my husband here actually. He was sitting there. So it was another turning point. I had um, figured out, at that time I didn't own a car, I just had a scooter. And it was kind of treacherous, it was a 50cc scooter, so fairly exciting in wet weather. And I'd got here and I was looking at a map to work out the back streets to get home. And he comes up to me and he goes, don't you know your way home? I thought, well, that's pretty forward. <laughs> Someone, that plant has to be interesting. And um, anyway, we had a few cups of tea back when people used to gather in the kitchen over there after the Dharma talk. And anyway, the rest is history. We, we were married, um, oh, about six months later. <laughs> yeah. So... That was another turning point, and then gradually I got more involved and I decided to um, come along to, I think we had some training for the care line back then. And yeah, so gradually got more involved with the Buddhist society and started volunteering. And that, that really opens up the heart when you have that opportunity just to do something good, something that's bigger than you. And that was, um, yeah, that was quite lovely. And for the last three or four years, I've been, actually, I don't know if it's that long, at least a couple of years or so, I've been um, helping to coordinate the Kalyana Friendship Community, or KFC, as Arjun Brahm calls it. And the reason I felt so driven to do that was that, and I think I've told this story before, but um, a couple of people had said to me, you know, I've been going to BSWA on and off for about 20 years and I've just never met anyone. And I said, what do you mean? So many people on a Friday night. And they said, well, we come along we listen to the talk, we do the meditation, then we all go home. And unless you're, you know, unless it's a family outing or it's a very strong part of your culture, then they just weren't meeting people. They're just, you know, meeting friends. And I said, well, that's not very good. That's, you know, the whole point of, like one of the main tenets of, Buddhism is Kalyanamitta, spiritual friendship. And we all know the story of the 
Now the monk who went off to meditate on the island by himself and he said to the Buddha, I really want to go to this beautiful island and meditate by myself. And Buddha said, not yet, not yet. And then off he went. He came back and the Buddha said, you know, how was the experience? How was the meditation? He said, oh, it's okay. I think I've realized that um, spiritual friendship is half the path, isn't it? And the Buddha said, no, no, it's the whole of the path. That Kalyanamitta, that spiritual friendship. So that's one of the um, reasons that my friends and I really put the effort in to trying to get those friendship groups moving again. And it was quite a wonderful experience last year. People really came together. Eddie had some, Eddie has got so many musical instruments. So we had some music nights and some good parties. Um, lots, of, lots of great sessions with the, um, particularly with the junior monastics. They, you know, they want to talk with people and we want to know who the Sangha is. And so it's, it was quite a lovely turning point again to do that and try and realise that vision of the fourfold Sangha. Because the, the Buddha always said that he wanted to see the fourfold Sangha, the, the monastic men, the monastic women, the householder men, the householder women coming together. So that's the idea. And yeah, so that's sort of how things eventuated. And I hope this is moderately interesting. Um, the other thing that we've been doing at the, um, what we've done over the last couple of years is pull together the spiritual education group because um, we realised there was people doing you know, wonderful volunteer things out in the community and it would be helpful to draw them together so that they did have um, a level of support and spiritual friendship. So we went through a process of um, basically accrediting all the lay teachers so it's about 30 people who do all sorts of things like guide meditation classes at Curtin University. Um, Ariel can tell you all about that. Yeah, so creating that opportunity for students. Um, we, we, we do have a prison program it's unfortunately quite hard to get into the prisons because of the um, clearance procedures. But before COVID and for at least um, a year, up until about a year ago, we had volunteers going into the prisons, namely Acacia Prison and leading meditation classes. Um, since then, the most I've been able to do is send boxes of books and um, arrange visitors when people um, need a visitor at, a, at the prisons. 
From time to time, we'll also get phone calls of people requesting a chaplain or um, someone to go and sit with them if they're in hospital or in care. Um, that's something we'll be working on a bit more. Um, there's a, a few of us will be doing a introduction to chaplaincy course um, between now and Christmas. That's a bit of a long-term dream to have a chaplaincy program in place. Um, WA is a little bit difficult. Um, it's not quite as well organised with its chaplaincy programs. And we have a Sunday school. So there's a Dharma school where kids can come along. And when we did our 56 hours of meditation for the referendum the other week, I was sitting in here and the kids were here having their class. It was just beautiful. It was really lovely that sitting, learning about the Dharma. So there's lots of different things that sort of go on behind the scenes, but this place really runs on volunteers. Whether it's the people who clean the toilets, the people who do the gardening, the people who come and put flowers up here, do the vacuuming. It is quite incredible, the power of this place. What I've learnt from my friends who um, also have community roles, things like um, scouts or guides or surf life-saving, they, they, all, they all have similar issues in terms of retaining volunteers. And, you know, the, the Buddhist society is quite incredible because when I look at things like the um, CWA and Rotary and Lions and, you know, those Australian institutions of, you know, community service, they've really fallen away. But somehow through all of that, that sada, that, that strong sense of faith, that strong community, Kalyanamitta, that's here, has allowed us to thrive. So that's amazing. I'd like to, you know, thank everyone who does volunteer and, and helps to make the Buddhist society what it is, because it, it is incredible. There is, you, and every now and again someone will remind me and say, you won't often see this anywhere else in the world where you have a monk's monastery, a nun's monastery, and a very active community. So those are, that's kind of my little turning points journey of what brought me to the BSWA and you know why I just loved this great big family. Um, but probably what would be fun to do is to open the floor to some questions and I'll do my best to share what I know, or have a chat, <laughs> yeah, have a yarn, quat wongy, good words. <laughs> so, um, 
Would anyone like to ask a question? If you have a question, please come yeah. up. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, up the back. It's my. You have good questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. The roving mics are not working tonight, so you have to come to the um, the front. Don't be afraid. So my question to you is, after the tsunami, and after you had that feeling of sense of like, there's something bigger than you, how did you navigate that chaos of moving forward, of not knowing where you were going? And I just like feel like, say with your meditation and with things when, when there's chaos in the world happening and you don't know where to move forward, what intention do you bring with your meditation or do you have a practice of some kind to deal with that? Yeah, look, when um, after the tsunami, I was pretty shaken up. I didn't really know how to deal with it. But over the years, I've had, um, you know, other things happen like a spate of bad migraines or injuring my back. And I guess what my meditation practice taught me was how to go to that place of refuge. And it's not so much moving forward, it's being in the present moment. So it's feeling that stillness and getting a sense of the way life flows around you. So that I had that... Um, it gave me that sense of stability, I guess. So whether it is a silent meditation or it's listening to a talk, that's um, not being very articulate, but it's kind of beyond words. It's when you, you know, when you've had that experience where everything stands still when the body falls away, when the mind quietens, and there's that deep sense of security and safety, that's, that's when you know you've met your, you know, you're residing in your place of refuge. And, and I guess that's where I go to. That, that's what got me through a year of migraines, and that's what got me through back injuries and car crashes and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, no, no and if I could ask a second question. Yeah. What do you think stops people from flowing with light? What do you think really seizes them up when they should be meditating or actually just taking time for themselves? What actually you think creates that resistance to actually doing the practice or doing the thing that actually helps you? Yeah, I think we, um, it's kind of like that prison of self stuff I was talking about a couple of weeks ago. It's, I mean, in plain English, it's learning to um, not cling to our expectations. I mean, I, I, think the, I think the schooling system's got a bit to answer for. Like, we go to school and it's all about getting things right. And then we apply that to our meditation practice. Oh, it's got to be this way. It's a good practice, it's a bad practice. And we end up striving 
then we become very disappointed when we feel like we haven't met our expectations. And I think that's what hold, holds people back. Whereas if we were a little bit more forgiving and kind and realise that, um, just like Venerable Choki was saying a couple of weeks ago, there is no bad meditation. It's about recognising the moment-to-moment -moment experience. And you know, some days I'll sit in the morning on my cushion and it'll be entirely crappy. Terrible meditation. But if you do that every day, you just come back and you sit. Some days are bad, some days are good, some days are who knows. Over time you create that habit and it does become that place of refuge. And then the feelings about, am I flowing? Am I progressing? So on and so forth, they kind of fall away. So I think, um, you know, it, it's the first, it's having that right understanding and it's having that kindness and that discipline because there is a level of discipline in this. That's yeah. what pulled me through, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And this will be my final question. When it comes to that idea of intention, and talking mm. about bringing intention into your meditation and gratitude into your day, how do you do that when you're dealing with, let's say, people or situations that really grate you and you have to go into that place of meditation and intention of gratitude? You don't let them in. So your cushion is your sacred space. Space for you. And that's when you let go of the world. And then, yeah, look, those people are always going to be there. There are always going to be people that irritate us. And I think the thing to remember, and this is really hard, right, is that there's always a mirror so that person who really gets on like goat, they're generally reflecting something within myself. And it's pretty humbling. So you sort of, it requires a fair amount of forgiveness. But it's, it's recognising, you know, we're the product of our perceptions and our conditioning. And once you start to understand that, things become a little bit easier because um, I'm often worried about misinterpreting things, but um, one of the things that has always stuck with me is that Simple saying, I forget which sutta it is, where the Buddha said, everything I've experienced is in this fathom long body. So everything I experience, I've kind of created through my perceptions, through my conditioning. So it's not a question of, um, oh, I bought it upon myself. It's more just recognising that 
you know, the, the mind is quite unreliable. Um, you, you know that from early morning dreams, right? And you have all sorts of wacky dreams, or at least I do. And you think, where on earth did that come from? And it's, yeah, just, just understanding that um, your own level of um, conditioning, your own level of perception. And then it's a bit like when thoughts enter your mind in meditation, you see them arise, you see them pass. It's impermanent. It's the irritating person might be there, but you know, it, it's not what's in here. Yeah, that's you. yeah. Yeah. That's very understandable. Thank you very much. For I'm glad it's understandable. Yeah, yeah. Um, any other questions? Eddie. You have to come up to the mic. Sandra, this is to share you know, your experience in the tsunami in Sri Lanka. You call it like a near-death experience or maybe escape from, you know? From, yeah. From, uh, yeah, yeah. So what I mean, and you're saying that there's something to it, isn't it, okay? And I think for all people here, you know, you're in here, there's something to it, there's protection for all of us because we could be... We could be like a stream entrant, you know? Mm -hmm. This experience of mine happened maybe 30, 40 years ago in Malaysia. I was then a Buddhist already, you know, okay? Yeah. So the thing, uh, uh, yeah, uh, the, I was driving, you know? I was driving, yeah, this uh, in the afternoon. There was traffic lights, you know? Traffic lights, this thing. I was going from here, traffic light, I stopped this thing, going to there. There's traffic coming from here, from, you know? So as I, as I drive here, Slow down to stop. There was in here in me, you know, in here, there was intense bliss came out. I don't know why, you know. <laughs> it was very intense bliss. What's this, you know? And then I, I was just, but, and then the, the lights go, go for me to go, you know, hang on, lights here, okay, for me to, from here to turn here, isn't it? As I, because of the bliss, as I, I was driving slowly, this thing, and suddenly I put the traffic from here. A car, a car came shooting across just so fast, you know. Just if I go faster, I would have been killed already. You know, yeah. So the thing is, I, I, got, I got time to um, stop the car there. I got up and did like that with the guy. So that's the forest that is, that's, from, you know, yeah. I, I know this, that's protection for us, all these things. I can't, this very intense bliss came out. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then because of bliss, I slowed down in driving. So I was just, so boom, you know, started, just a little bit more, I could have been killed. So I just, like, there is something, protection for us all here. You're, you're not just coming here like that, there is protection. <laughs> you know. You yeah, whether like, you call it protection or deep intuition, uh, I think, you know, that old grandma saying, mm. Um, go with your gut reaction, <laughs> or your gut feeling. Uh, there, there's something in that. <laughs> there is something there. Yeah. yeah others too. I would. This is the near mm. the, the thing. So there is. You're not just coming here. This thing. Okay. 
Like there is protection here. Okay. Mm. Thank you for the joy. Cool. Um, any other questions or comments? Story sharing. <laughs> we can share stories, share yarns. Good on you. I was a bit hesitant about asking this question, but in your uh, meditation journey, have you ever had any uh, extraterrestrial UFO experiences? I can't say I have, no. I've had some pretty wild experiences on retreat. Because, um, you know, the mind can do all sorts of crazy things. Like when you go into a real quiet space and... Like whether it's limiters or what it is, but and I remember, um, I think it was Catalyst, where, yeah, there was, I think the it was Catalyst, and the presenter was put in a sensory deprivation chamber, so no light, no sound, and the mind started doing the most amazing things for her. And she'd see lights and all sorts of things. And I've asked Arjun Brahm about this before, and he said, it's just another form of perception. It just shows you how unreliable the mind really is. So, you know, whether it's extraterrestrial or limiters or... Yeah. Because the reason I ask is, um, um, in my research in the subject... Oh, cool. Um, uh, I learned that as a, as a human species, we mm -hmm. have two choices. Mm. If you sort of go towards the war path, we are deemed to destroy ourselves. But if we raise our consciousness to a higher level, which is what I believe that ETs are, then we are destined to go towards peace. And I believe all ETs are peaceful. Because you know, if, I'm thinking if you have high intelligence, you would want to... Yeah. One so, would hope so. I don't know. So. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, you're very experienced meditation, so I figured... Yeah. And, and a way to... What I learned is to, com to sort of connect with them is um, through sort of meditation and uh, remote viewing and sort of like channeling. Uh, because they say that the thoughts travel faster than the speed of light. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Anyways, there's the whole thing about it. it's called C5. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of great work being done, um, looking at quantum physics and how it relates to consciousness. I'm yeah, by no means equipped to talk about that one, but just on a very you know day-to-day -day level, like something like meta meditation. Um, it, it's uncanny, you know. I can. So I remember a teacher telling me about this and then it kind of came true. So when we, you know, we did the little, you know, thanking ourselves, meta for ourselves and then meta for someone in need of kindness and meta for each other. I remember um, meditating, doing meta for my brother. So I would think, you know, thoughts of kindness towards my brother. May he be happy, may he be well, you know, may he move through his day with ease, so on and so forth. And then later that afternoon, he just rings me out of the blue to see how I'm going. 
And a number of things have happened like that. Or I might be deeply upset about something. Then my brother will ring me. Or a family member will ring me out of the blue. And I sort of wonder if there is um, connection well, I, that is generated by you know, building a good vibration or a good meditative energy. Yeah, because I said that everything has a consciousness, it's all like connected through. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, if you have time, check out the CE5. I will. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm just yeah. curious because you're more experienced meditation than myself. So. Yeah. The person Anyways. to ask about that kind of stuff is Dennis Shepard. He'll be here for the last talk. He, he spends a lot of time studying oh. that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yep, we're on a roll, keep going. <laughs> Any other questions? Meditation stories? Everyone's too afraid to come to the mic. <laughs> but hey, you didn't have to do the talk off the bat. But <laughs> Anyways, if there's um, no other questions, then yeah, we might call it a close. And I'll, I don't know, just for the fun of it, I'll chant three namatasas. Then we can pay our respects to the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Say a few sadhus. And that'll be our evening. So I actually um, had a funny experience. Saturday night, Saturday night's party night, I went to the, um, oh, I can't say it properly, the Ahmadiyya. It's the Muslim Women's Peace Conference. I didn't really know what to expect. But I went along and um, we, I wore a hijab out of respect. And I ended up chanting Namatasas and Nameta Sutta to the Muslim women. And they said, oh, because they've got beautiful chants. And they said, we've never heard anything like that. <laughs> so yeah, places um, Buddhism will take you. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambodasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambodasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Buddham Dhamam Sangam Namasami A different take. <laughs> sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>